3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to another breakfast, Thursday breakfast show. Good morning, Carly. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, team. The 17th of September. Morning, listeners. Yes, it is another Thursday and um, look, it's it's been a bit of a rough week so far, or at least it has been at the point that we're recording this. Um, we're just having a bit of a team chat thinking about um, issues of police violence and brutality and the way that that's sort of been escalating across the board during the pandemic, um, you know, trying to think about things like the policing of the anti-lockdown protests where we might not necessarily agree with um, with some of the values espoused by people pushing to close the lockdown, um, but also thinking about the events on Monday and Tuesday where um, police engaged in real acts of brutality against people. You know, somebody, somebody was shot, somebody was hit by a car, um, and kind of thinking about those on a continuum of of violence and brutality that really um, doesn't feel sustainable. doesn't feel like the kind of world that we, that we want to imagine for our future. Right guys. Yeah, absolutely not. And also um, another Aboriginal woman um, also died in a watch house um, earlier this week as well up in Minjin, Brisbane. So just want to pay yeah, respects to her family and all the mob up there. Um, and yeah, I was just telling the team too that, you know, um, yeah, it was like two years to the day when, um, there was another action actually that was happening outside of the Brisbane watch house. Um, and yeah, this just keeps like happening and happening and happening. And yeah, just thinking about all of the families, um, across this continent that have had loved ones die in prison um, and also all of the mob out there who have been in prison um, and have had their lives, um, I guess, affected by that. You know, people don't just die because of prisons. Like, their lives are also, like, shortened and impacted um, because of that carceral system as well. And, yeah, just thinking about, yeah, those people um, who have also died because of the prison system, not necessarily just not just died in prison. Yeah. The sort of different levels, the way that the different institutions of the state speak to each other and uphold the prison system and uphold uh, like police brutality. Uh, yeah. We're also just like, I was also giving an example of a, of someone that we know um, who, had a friend call the ambulance and then the police rocked up instead. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's just, 
it's it's a it's a whole system and it's all interacted within the sort of like yeah colonial structures of the state I guess but still like yeah we need to imagine ways of like organizing societies outside those structures and how do we do that and just to just to reiterate all of that we we can't be policing our way out of a pandemic and um just to touch on another one of the kind of concerning issues that's come up lately is you know the Andrews government announcing um building a new prison as a as a method for job creation um in response to covid-19 which i mean is just uh, a really perverse kind of approach um but to to come back to what carly was talking about earlier um I just wanted to bring people's attention to the fact that uh there is a fundraiser going for the auntie that passed away in that Brisbane Watch House Justice for Auntie Sherry Fisher um and the fundraiser is for funeral costs and expenses for the family uh you can find the link in our Instagram bio that is at 3CR Thursday breakfast and we've got a link tree there where you can find um the visual uh, sorry the uh fundraiser for Auntie Sherry Fisher but also for a bunch of other um families of people who've died in custody um and there's also going to be a vigil and march this Friday the 18th of September in Minjin um at 4 p.m. so you can follow uh Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance on Facebook or on Instagram at at war revolt for updates on that too thanks for sharing that priya Uh so today on our show uh first up we have after the news with Kate Kelly we have uh Jessica Stott who is the service delivery manager at the Victorian Women Non-Binary and Gender Diverse Referral Group WIA uh Victoria wide free support information and referrals network to women non-binary and gender diverse people so Jessica joins us to discuss in particular the the, the intersections of domestic and family violence covid-19 and the lockdown period. After that, we're going to hear a small excerpt from the para, uh, from the panel Arab Australian Authors Unite for Lebanon, which was recorded on Saturday the 5th of September to raise funds for the victims of the Beirut explosion. Um so these is some of so-called Australia's most celebrated authors, poets and academics of Lebanese and Arab backgrounds who came together for two nights of online discussions about the literature of the Arab diaspora. It was hosted by Better Read Than Dead Bookstore in Newtown in Sydney and Sweatshop Writers Collective and moderated by Dr. Jamana Baye and the panel featured Ghassan Haj, Amani Haider, Omar Sakar, Sara Ayoub, Ruby Hamad and MM Morsi. Um 100% of those ticket proceeds by the way were donated to Impact Lebanon which is an NGO that provides disaster relief as well as activism resources for the Lebanese diaspora. Um and you can read more about the work of impact lebanon on impactlebanon.org/about and then lastly i sit down with ben marley hermans and she's a wadjiri irish and flemish woman living on nonawal and nambri land she is a disabled organizer and writer is a board member of women with disabilities act and she currently works in gender based violence policy alongside studying a masters of social work and Marley joins me to speak about the Australian government's recent announcement 
of independent assessors that are going to be appointed as part of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And now we're going to head to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. All the world's governments have fallen short on pledges made a decade ago to protect wildlife, according to a new United Nations report. So countries are set to miss all of the targets they set themselves a decade ago to preserve nature and save Earth's vital biodiversity. Humanity's impact on the world, on the natural world over the last five decades has been nothing short of cataclysmic. Since 1970, close to 70% of wild animals, birds and fish have vanished, according to a WWF assessment this month. So last year, the UN's Panel on Biodiversity warned that one million species face extinction as man-made activity has already severely degraded three-quarters of land on Earth. In 2010, 190 member states of the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity committed to a battle plan to limit the damage inflicted on the natural world by 2020. The 20 objectives range from phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and limiting habitat loss to protecting fish stocks. But in its latest Global Diversity Outlook released on Tuesday, the UN said that none of these goals would be met. And everyone's least favourite author, J.K. Rowling, has come under fire again, this time with the news that her latest piece of, her latest book will revolve around a male serial killer who disguised as a woman. So written under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith, Troubled Blood will be the fifth instalment in Rowling's, Rowling's Cormon and Strike Detective series. However, it will not be the first work in the series to draw criticism, with the embattled author previously called out for her depiction of a trans woman in the second novel, The Silkworm. So, in an early review published in The Telegraph, journalist Jake Kerridge said of Troubled Blood, One wonders what critics of Roland's stance on trans issues will make of a book whose moral seems to be, Never trust a man in a dress. Most concerning is Rowling's apparent emphasis on painting trans characters in the roles of villains. And despite the fact that in reality, obviously, trans people are more likely to fall victim to rather than become perpetrators of crime and acts of violence. So earlier this year, Rowling, Rowling alienated herself from many after mocking a headline about people who menstruate. And Queensland police say they are making inquiries into the conduct of an officer after he was photographed wearing a thin blue line flag patch at a Black Lives Matter protest last week. So the Queensland police officer was photographed wearing the flag patch that is associated with far-right extremism on his uniform while deployed at the protest on in Brisbane on Friday following the death in custody of an Indigenous woman at the City Watch House. In a statement, the Queensland Police Service said it was aware of an officer wearing a patch which was not part of the standard QPS uniform and that they were making inquiries into the matter. However, it is understood that exemptions are rarely made and police are investigating if the officer sought permission to get one. 18 people were arrested at the protest which was held after a 49-year-old Indigenous woman died in police custody at the Brisbane City Wash House on Thursday. The protesters chanted and waved placards demanding justice and an end to re- racist policing. 
The police station and its, si- and its sign outside the front of the station were marked with red painted hand prints, an image that has come to symbolise Aboriginal deaths in custody. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Just a warning for listeners, the next section contains elements and stories of domestic and family violence. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Jessica Stott is the Service Delivery Manager at the Victorian Women, Non-Binary and Gender Diverse Referral Group, WIRE, a Victoria-wide free service that provides support, information and referrals to women, non-binary and gender diverse people. So Jessica joins us today to discuss the intersections of domestic and family violence, COVID-19 and the lockdown period. Hi, Jessica, and welcome. Hi. Firstly, could you tell us a bit about WIRE and the work that you do there? Sure. So WIRE is a service that has been around now for about 36 years. Um, It started as a family violence referral service back in the 1980s in Melbourne, and since that time it's grown a lot, Um, but we continue to provide support, information and referrals to um, women, as you said, women, non-binary and gender diverse people on Victoria, in Victoria on any issue. Um, my role at WIRE is the service delivery manager, so I manage the parts of the organisation that have direct, cli- direct contact with clients. Um, as well as that, we conduct a lot of um, research and projects on a range of issues that affect um, people in our communities, including financial abuse and financial capability. Uh, and you kind of just touched on it uh, just before. So, yeah, before we get into uh, discussing the impacts of COVID-19, uh, can you give us a bit of a rundown as to what family and domestic violence uh, can look like? Sure. Um, we're, as I said, we're a generalist service. We provide support on any issue. But having said that, the main reason for contact at WIRE is relationship breakdown and family violence. Um, that can take any number of forms and it can happen in a wide range of relationships as well. We have some myths around family violence, which are that it just happens in, um, in heterosexual couples with always the man perpetrating against the woman. But we know at why that that's not the case. Family violence can happen in any kind of relationship, in any queer relationships, in um, intergenerational relationships or between adult siblings. Um, and it's the, the common factor in any form of family violence is abuse of power. Um, and so we know that uh, family and domestic violence are exacerbated in times of crises um, and that COVID-19 has shown an increase, a significant increase in cases uh, as people and mostly women um, are confined in their homes with abusive partners. So could you expand on this and provide further details? Mm, Sure. So we've heard, um, you know, we hear many, many stories from different people. It seems as though the um, COVID-19 is creating some conditions in which family violence can really um, worsen. Um, For example, people usually do a lot of 
um, safety planning in their lives all the time if they're in a relationship where there's abusive power. Um, safety planning can include things like leaving the house if the violence is escalating or seeking support from friends or perhaps um, even going to work or spending time going to the gym perhaps could be a way of um, getting yourself safe from um, escalating violence. But in this situation, as you can imagine, people don't have those same options that they have for um, protecting themselves and for seeking support. Um, so people are a bit more vulnerable if that's happening in their in in their situation. Um, Another interesting thing is that there's, there's a set of red flags, which are the conditions that indicate that someone is at increased risk of death or serious injury. Um, and some of those red flags are very relevant to COVID-19. One of them is perpetrator unemployment. Um, that can be if the person who's perpetrating the violence is unemployed, that can be um, at an additional risk to um, the, the people who they're abusing. And as you can imagine, there's quite a bit of that at the moment and the, the pressures around that. We've also um, people, I think, who have been managing um, abusive relationships over a long term period of time because of these conditions that are happening in COVID can no longer bear it or can no longer manage it and that's leading to um, an increase in separations but then recent separation is also a red flag. It's a, one of the factors that increases violence and we our understanding of that is that if someone experiencing violence is taking steps to take back control of their own lives and leave the relationship, the person who is um, trying to get control through um, abusive power can escalate the violence in order to try to maintain control. So we're hearing a lot of that kind of situation too. And also how has um, uh, people, you mentioned before uh, some examples of uh, coping mechanisms like leaving the house and that sort of thing. So how has not leaving the house um, or, you know, other issues to do with like the restrictions being only able to meet up with one person and that sort of thing um, and maybe also being uh, in the house with an abusive partner, how would you get help? How would you contact uh, someone if like your partner's listening in on your phone call or that sort of thing? Yeah, it's really difficult. It's a really big challenge um, at the moment with WIRE and I'm sure with many other services as well because we're not working in our office. We're not able to pick up the phone at the moment. So every person who um, we speak to has already has left a message with us and we've called them back. So we're never really speaking to people at a time that is, um, you know, of their own choosing. So one of the things that we're doing at WIRE is being very flexible about um, about about call, making, if we call people back and it's not a good time for them to talk, we can make an arrangement with them to call them back at a time that's going to be better for them. Um, we also have the options of using live chat or email for support as well. So I think that in, and a lot of people call us when they're on a walk, <laughs> 
<laughs> of course, and lots of kind of wind noises and that kind of thing. But we're really trying to support people as much as we can to give them options to call and um, at a time that's convenient and safe for them and always checking for their safety at the beginning of um, when we first get on to people. There are also reports of first-time abuse arising out of COVID-19 and the restrictions. Could you expand on this and tell us why? So you mentioned before uh, perhaps, uh, you know, some red flags like losing your job. Yeah, um, yeah, possibly the mounting pressures and the compounding pressures of COVID-19 are leading to... Um, first-time reports of abuse in relationships. It might not be the first time that it's happened, but it might be the first time that people are realising. So a lot of the work that we do at WIRE is um, creating a space where we can provide a framework for people in which people can understand their relationships. So we'll always be working with the person's experience of their own situation rather than um, advising them or telling them what it is. One of the indicators that it's violence is that the person has reduced choices as a result of the other person's behaviour and that they feel scared. Um, so we can sort of ask questions around that. We can we can describe what we would call family violence, which is in the law. The understanding is that it's um, controlling another person through intimidation, and we can um, explain that framework and then ask invite the person to talk about whether that rings true for them and whether they feel that they're in that situation. And so it's kind of um, providing a space where people can reflect upon whether they think their own relationship is abusive um, and given the the um, the difficulty in relationships but just the general difficulties of COVID-19 people are experiencing a, a lot of um, feelings of isolation and despair so why are being a generalist service will speak to people on you know any number of issues so violence in a relationship might not be their reason for calling but sometimes in the way that we can sort of unpack a person's story with them that will be opened up and they will disclose that and and they could identify it for the first time for themselves. And when we spoke earlier, you spoke about uh, people at the intersections uh, facing particular disadvantage, so due to compounding barriers like uh, language, race, uh, gender, um, or previous encounters with the justice system and poverty, uh, just to name a few. Um, can you sort of uh, talk to this maybe a bit more? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a theme. We map the themes that... Um, that we come across through the service delivery at area at WIRE and a really vivid theme that has been coming out of our mapping is that the more um, the more systems of the, the more layers of oppression that a person is experiencing um, the less adequate support they seem to get from the service system and the more resourceful and creative they need to be with um, finding their own solutions with the resources that they already have within themselves and their communities. Um, so speaking directly with people who've got these incredible stories of marginalisation and barriers, but also incredible stories of being um, 
you know, gracious and accepting and advocating for themselves and working with their communities to find their own solutions. So um, I know that sometimes in the community services sector, people are described as vulnerable people, but in my experience, people are impressive and resilient and resourceful and amazing. Uh, it's a privilege to hear people's stories. Just as you were speaking, you were saying that um, there's usually a framing around uh, people who are experiencing uh, domestic or um, family violence, around, um, framing them as victims. Um, but also there's, uh, there's resilience and strength. Um, and I guess could you speak or expand on that a bit more? Also the importance of having community and community building. Yeah, I think a really outstanding example that we all know about from COVID in Melbourne is when the lockdown of the towers happened and it happened without notice and seemingly without much preparation by the government and, and an incredible example of community organising was so evident in the fact that the food and supplies that were needed by the person, people in the lockdown in the towers were provided more efficiently and um, effectively by community organisers than they were by the state government. And when we, and when we think who work with community accountability and community activism, it's all those um, movements always come from people who are who have been marginalised themselves because they are the people who ha- hold, who have that understanding of the experience and really understand what needs to change. So I suppose one of the opportunities in COVID is for us to kind of look at, um, you know, how racism can play out and how who gets really affected and who gets left behind and who gets prioritised at a time like this. And it really sheds a lot of light on the way that we um, order our hierarchy in our society. So we can sort of really begin to um, um, sort of illuminate our blind spots in a lot of ways and think about the ways that we think about who we want to align with um, and what we want to do with our communities. It's a, there's a, as well as being a disappointing time in history, I feel that it has a lot of potential for um, people coming together as activists as well. And I guess that's like the exciting thinking about the exciting aspect of it is thinking about the future and ways that we can sort of circumnavigate uh, these sort of st- structural things that are inherent in our societies. Because not only do um, people face violence at the hands of their partners or ex-partners, um, but there's also a, a violence that's perpetrated by the state or by empire. If you really want to go broad, but. Um, um, against the same survivors. Um, so uh, social institutions like police are notorious for, for this as well. Um, so I guess could you speak to this, like within a broader structural framework and the way like patriarchal and government systems operate? Mm. And I think the way that 
that patriarchal systems operate, but also the way that we buy into that with our attitudes. It always makes me think about violence prevention work. And a big part of violence prevention work is raising awareness about our own attitudes and the way that we, the ways that we have bought it into the idea of hierarchies and um, the ways that we have bought into condoning of violence against different people um, and the victim blaming narratives, for example. So something that we can do as individuals is to be alert to the ways that we perpetuate those ideas ourselves and then we can call it out or call each other in when we notice that in each other as well and it's through those um you know changing attitudes that I think that we can have we we can we can create change that comes from a grassroots place because it's um you know who is going to be in those structures really matters and the attitudes that we hold when we're in those structures really matter and we need to first change our thinking in order to know what we want to dismantle. Um, and I guess, yeah, also uh, changing, like, uh, expectations, behaviours and norms, especially in regards to, like, um, toxic masculinity <laughs> and, I guess, yeah, those patriarchal things which are the, like, which a lot of the violence comes from. Absolutely, yep. And ideas and one of the attitudes that's been found to drive violence against women is um, rigid stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. So what do we expect from um, a man and what do we expect from a woman and what do we expect from people? Do we expect them to either be a man or a woman, but what happens when we break down that binary idea of gender um, and the uh, and the prevention of violence lies in that. It lies in breaking down those binaries and breaking down the concepts of what we need to be because then we are, if we're more open-minded um, than that, we are no longer sort of... Um, punishing each other or condoning violence against people who don't meet those stereotypes. And a similar concept can be applied to racism. What do we think a white person should be like? What do we think a person of colour should be like? Suppose it's ultimately, it's about seeing it for what it is and seeing the inequity that is built into the fabric of it so that we can have a different um, different concept of the way that we want things to be. And I think that that does, ch- that does begin with us changing our own attitudes and the ways that we relate to one another. Great. And so if listeners want to find out more about WIRE uh, and the work that you do, or if they need to access your service, how can they do so? Yes, they can access our service by um, going on our website, which is wire.org. We've got a huge amount of um, information and booklets on a whole range of topics, including family violence on there. You can also access our live chat through the website. You can email us at support at wire.org.au or call us on 1300 134 130. Great. Thank you so much, Jessica. And was there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Just thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to meet you and talk to you today. That 
was Jessica Stott, who is the Service Delivery Manager at the Victorian Women, Non-Binary and Gender Diverse Referral Group, WIRE. And she joined us to discuss the intersections of domestic and family violence and COVID-19 lockdown. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am or digital, 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. You can also listen back to our show on Apple Podcasts. Just search Thursday Breakfast at 3CR. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, Thursday morning breakfast. It's time to head into a song, and this one is Rider in the Rain 2020 by Moju, Trials and Birds. This road's called progress. Ooh. It runs from oblivion to nowhere. Six names forever. Ooh. You just face ahead and stare across bridges of illusion through them.
Just then we heard Rider in the Rain 2020 by Moju, Trials and Birds. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. On the 4th of August 2020, a horrifying blast devastated Lebanon's capital, Beirut. To raise funds for the victims of the Beirut explosion, some of so-called Australia's most celebrated authors, poets and academics of Lebanese and Arab backgrounds came together for two nights of online discussions about the literature of the Arab diaspora. On today's show, we're lucky to hear a small excerpt from the panel Arab-Australian Authors Unite for Lebanon, recorded on Saturday the 5th of September. The panel was hosted by Better Red Than Dead Bookstore in Newtown, Sydney and Sweatshop Writers Collective. The panel was moderated by Dr. Jamana Bayer and features Ghassan Haj, Amani Haider, Omar Seka, Sara Ayoub, Ruby Hamad and M.M. Morsi. We pick up the conversation with Omar Seka reading from his poem on belonging to a country that cannot keep its children. And a content warning before we begin. This conversation touches on family and domestic violence. So I will say at the start that the title uh, comes from uh, Hassan Haj uh, and a talk that I I heard him give. um, And uh, I will read the poem now. I'm belonging to a country that cannot keep its children. The day is forecast as catastrophic. Heat strangles the sky. It bulges a rotten purple. Earlier, an old Greek and a friend unexpected slipped into my sleeping throat to see why I bulged, rotting within. A history believed in threatens to become faith in a future. Didn't anyone tell you never to eat a seed? Oh, it grows, it grows. You must lose this weight to be at ease. I rode the wind to another city to tell it to get off my back, out my belly, and it swallowed me whole into its riot, or Tuesday as it was better known, where aunties and uncles circled to hold my nude loving, my rude namelessness, and we, none of us truly family, except in our living, considered whether to kiss 
or kill the soldiers in our minds, the country burns still, and the smoke of it blurs blue ocean, forest, fences. I mistakenly mow my neighbor's yard. I weep into a stranger's handbag, and she says, my son, now is not the time for grieving. It is the time for returning, and this, and this, and this is what bulges and burns. You refuse, again, to kiss your mother's feet, to call her home. Um, so at the time of writing that poem, there were... Uh, there was the uprising uh, going on in in uh, Lebanon, and I feel weird calling it that, but uh, there was a coming together, let's say, um, in protest, um, in anger, but also uh, in love. There were so many uh, moments that were circulated of love between uh everyday citizens and soldiers even um, on the street. And uh, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, what Hassan had said about the country not being able to keep its children uh, really struck a chord in me. And I wanted also to flip that a little bit and, and, and uh, think on what it means to be a child that doesn't, return or can't return uh, and can't love his or her or their mother as that mother deserves yeah can i can i come in here uh, for like i i think uh, I, I i became very interested when omar wrote this because uh, uh in a classical uh, diasporic mode uh, usually uh, that is if you have left uh, your motherland. Uh, the classic, classical formulation psychologically is often, often that it is the father who has not loved you. Uh, it is the, the, the country, the land itself is always perceived as nice and beautiful and motherly, but it couldn't mother you because your father was a nasty bastard who didn't know how to look after the mother. And usually uh, the nasty bastard is the step. And so people uh, often migrate by differentiating between Lebanon as the land that mothers me and the state, Lebanese state that's supposed to look after me and and the mother. And so if I'm leaving, it's not because my mother doesn't love me, it's because the state did not look after my mother enough to make me. So I, I leave and I still love my mother, but I hate the state. And uh, what is interesting today, I think, uh, what we are seeing is that uh, there is another layer which is coming up with the uprising, uh, is that uh, there is a layer where people say, and the people of Lebanon are bloody wonderful. I mean, when you, when you look, look, I mean, there's an explosion as they went to the streets. They just cleaned everything, etc. And the state didn't do anything. The state is useless. The state, the state. So, 
So, yes, yeah, so the gendered nature of this imaginary is very interesting. So, so the fact that Omar was not born in Lebanon and did not have that, uh, that psychological sort of like uh, structure in that poem is interesting to me. particular reason, I guess, from my perspective why I've asked that question, I've been helping a little bit with um, packing initiatives. People have been packing goods to put into containers and airlift or ship to Lebanon. And, you know, generally women are gathering to do the packing, women that I've never met before. We just get an address and, and we go and we meet there and we do this horrible job of packing lots of food. And I was, I've been explaining this to, to people who are not Lebanese about and showing them pictures of, of what we're doing. And one of the a couple of times I've heard people, people have said to me, um, it's remarkable how so many Lebanese people who live abroad, who've left because they can't live in their country, in you know their homeland, the country can't give them opportunities. And yet they have this immense caring and goodwill and real deep need for Lebanon to, to be okay and to be doing more than okay. And I guess that's that's why I was asking this this question. I've I guess many diasporas are like this, but in my research I maybe I'm biased, I've often felt that there's something about the Lebanese diaspora, even you know, I wasn't even born there and yet there's this kind of clingingness to 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 that place and um, I haven't done any comparative work to see if other diasporas function like this, but I have been struck by the number of people that keep on saying this, keep on saying this to me. And I, I wonder if they were outside of Australia and something bad happened, I guess there were bushfires, would they be as affected or would they care? I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure how, how it works, but that's what um, generated for me um, my interest in, in that um in that question, or me asking that question. In a recent article that was published, um, it was, it's an online article and um, it was published in LitHub. I was struck by what a Lebanese-based writer, Lena uh, Munzir, had to say in response to the 4th of August, and this is what she said. What I am doing for myself as I write is this. I am taking the swirling chaos of feeling in my head and slowly packing it into solid containers of words I'm forcing it into a kind of submission so that I might be able to attain some measure of rest. And this took me back to ideas about writing as being steeped in helping us to make sense of the world and also in Adorno's sense how he calls writing a kind of home. For man, says Adorno, and I'm going to add for a woman, who no longer has a homeland, writing becomes a place to live. I'm not sure if I agree with Adorno because I have such a fraught and and hostile relationship to writing, but maybe that's the same thing as our relationship to home. But moving on, with that idea in mind of why of why we write and do we write for making sense of the world, Sarah and Amani, um, can you talk to us about why, like the creative process that you engage in, um, the characters that you might try to develop, are they based on people you know all the time, um, the storylines, um, those kinds of things? So, Sarah, if you'd like to start. Sure. Um, so, I guess mine's a combination of both. Um, I write to make sense of the world, to make sense of my world and my identity, but I also write to tell stories. And you can see that reflected in, in my novels. Um, my first one, Hate is Such a Strong Word, was a 
you know, uh, kind of nod to my own coming of age, to my own youth um, as an Australian-born Lebanese girl growing up in southwestern Sydney. My second novel was completely different. Um, my forthcoming novel, The Cult of Romance, drew very much from this um, idea of being suspended in between. And it was inspired by um, my PhD research um, of this idea that when we analyse the young adult literature of migrant teenage girls, um, there's this, um, you know, essentialised hybridity and there's no uh, reflection of the kinds of agency that young women make in determining their own identities or how they want to be identified. But I always come back to this one quote by Professor Ian Eng. Um, I'm going to read it because I think it's really powerful. Um, but she talks about being suspended in between as neither truly Western or authentically Asian, embedded in the West, yet always disengaged from it, disembedded from Asia, yet somehow enduringly attached to it. And that's exactly how I feel about Lebanon. And so my creative process is a reflection of being, particularly with this forthcoming novel, um, of being caught in between. Um, you know, feeling like an outsider here, knowing that I did everything that was expected of me, that I loved this Australian nation with all my heart. And, you know, I was, I, I did everything that a good migrant was supposed to do. And yet somehow I was always othered and I never quite belonged. And then going there, um, having grown up in the shadow of what I call the good Lebanese girl, you know, the sitl bait, the all these little things that um, I grew up thinking about and that my parents told me, you know, good Lebanese girls don't do this and good Lebanese girls don't do that and they behave like this. And then I went then and I was uh, confronted by the way that my cousins lived because my parents had essentially raised me in a time capsule. And so when we talk about creative processes, for me it's so much of unpacking all the things you know, it's uh, it's intersectionality. It's unpacking my identity, my racial identity. It's unpacking, you know, my class. I think if um, I wasn't a southwestern Sydney girl, then maybe my experience of being Lebanese in Australia would have been completely different. Um, you know, there's 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 race, there's faith, there's class, there's gender. Gender is so much of that. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, that's pretty much it for me. Thanks, Sarah. No, it does answer the question. I particularly appreciate the time capsule, the time warp thing that we experienced growing up here. I, um, my understanding of the way girls in Lebanon were growing up was that they were quiet and they didn't say anything. And then luckily I went there when I was 12 and I saw that there was a lot more than silence coming from those women. That's for sure. Um, Amanda, I know that you've done more um, art, artwork painting than, than writing, but you know, you're working on a book now, I believe. And so in terms of character development, creation stories, where, where does that come from for you? So all of my writing is kind of coming from a place that originally started as a healing process. Um, after my mum was murdered, I attended counselling at the Homicide Victims Support Group. And in one of my first sessions, my counsellor gave me a journal. She just put it in front of me. And she said, 
This is where you can write the things that you might not be able to say, the things that you're angry about, the things that you might want to say to people who won't listen. And that really opened up a form of expression for me at a time where I was feeling um, unable to really find empathy in a lot of people around me or even feeling kind of isolated by my experience that a lot of people couldn't relate to. So as that went along, um, the psychological, um, I guess, aspects of that started to play out. And I found that once I'd written something down, I I felt that I had um, captured it in a way that made more sense. So the quote that you read out really resonated with me, especially in relation to the um, idea of submission and the idea that you might be able to attain some measure of rest because it was a part of a therapy process that I was actually receiving. At the same time, I did feel that it wasn't enough for me to have those conversations with myself. I wanted to be able to um, start publishing writing, again, going back to um, the reason being that a lot was being published about me, um, a lot had happened that was way outside of my control and I felt for some sort of innate reason that becoming the master of that process or taking control of it and having agency in it would help. Um, and that kind of led me in that direction. So the next piece of writing that I had to do or the first piece of writing that I had to do that was that had that public um, element to it was actually writing a victim impact statement for the court and reading that out, knowing that there were reporters present and knowing that it was the first time that I would and, and the last time that I would confront my father. So from that grew a desire to continue the storytelling process in a way that's not really just about myself healing through that because I could do that in a journal, but in a way that constructs meaning and um, contributes to a broader conversation around gender, around domestic violence. And that then grew because the nature of my experiences um, is that there is uh, an intergenerational trauma that I'm I'm um, affected by, and that being that my mum lost her mum in the 2006 war in the south of Lebanon, and our village was decimated during that war and that happened when I was only 18 years old and an interesting little connection that came up as I was researching um, for my memoir was an interview that my mum did with the ABC where she was actually um, interviewed alongside Ghassan um, for the radio around a memorial that was held at the time. So I was this young person and these things are happening around me and it's only now that I've been able to revisit them and put them in some sort of order and reconstruct not just my life but my mum's life through that process. And I think I do feel as I'm kind of nearing um, maybe the, the end of a complete draft that um, something has happened both internally and um, hopefully that, I mean, something has happened internally and hopefully that will also translate when people actually read the work and um, show that there's a lot more to um, my mother's story than a court trial or this, um, you know, true crime um, narrative and that this intergenerational trauma hasn't ended for us and is something that I'm still contending with and affected by on a physical and psychological level every day. Um, thank you, Amani. That's um, 
I've really I've kind of lost words. It's wonderful what you're doing and, and must be really you know, emotionally taxing and, and all of those um all of those things that come with writing work writing work like that. Um it, it's quite commonly said that all writing to some degree is autobiographical. We draw on our experiences to write. But as someone who studies very closely, um, I've been working on diaspora literature for a while now, I think that there's a different kind of truth in saying that diaspora writing is really autobiographical in the sense that I think so many of the writers I've been reading, whether they're in Australia or in America or wherever else I've looked, the early novels in particular, you know, whether they've written sort of five or, you know, one novel, the early ones in particular are really about trying to make sense of the self and your place, you know, the, the person's, um, the writer's sort of place in the world and place in the family and place in the kind of um, system. So there is a, a kind of the author inserting him or herself in the work is kind of um, strongly there and, it's a bit. Uh, it's, it can be a bit tricky in literary studies to talk about that because we're not meant to talk about authors being present. But I think in diaspora writing, it's certainly um, strongly there. And what you're saying there, Amani, and also you, Sarah, really kind of resonates really strongly. Omar, um, we're up to you now because you're the poet of the group, and I'd like to, you to tell us. And sorry, this is a very indulgent question on my part. Um, as someone who struggles to understand poetry and don't even ask me to write it, why poetry, okay? What does it afford you in your work that prose doesn't do for you and vice versa? Um, and then also if you, if you can, if you could talk to us a little bit about white flu because it had such a, you know, it made a bang even before people could read it. Um, so, yeah, but obviously the first question is on white poetry and the second question is sort of on white flu. Sure. Uh, why poetry? You know, I was, uh, I looked up the Arabic word for poetry the other day and it said that one of the meanings uh, in Arabic of the word is feeling. And I felt like that was so apt straight away because I'm a deeply emotional man and uh, it makes sense to me uh, that uh, that is essentially what a poem is. Yeah, it's feeling. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons uh, it speaks so strongly to me. Uh, it's all voice, you know you get to the emotion straight away uh, and you are, you know, you just have to uh, give it a scaffolding in, in language alone. Um, whereas with fiction, there's so much more work you have to do. You know, you have to build all these characters and, and landscapes and uh, construct scenes that to, uh, get to the emotion. Uh, it's too much, you know. With poetry, you're there immediately. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is I'm lazy. Uh, and that's why poetry, <laughs> that's why I'm a poet first and foremost. Uh, Put in there and say, 
you're the first poet I've ever met who said that they're a poet because they're lazy. But also, <laughs> I think that as a person who tries to read and understand poetry, the level of effort that it takes to unpack a poem that might be, you know, as long as the one that you read is maybe even more taxing than it is to make sense of a novel. So you're, you know, you're giving the critic um, a big job is what I wanted to say. Uh, thank you. Um, to your second question about White Flu, uh, short story that I have in a great anthology edited by Michael Mohammed Ahmed um, that I urge you all to read after Australia. Um, yeah, it caused a, it caused a bit of a, a big reaction. Sarah's holding it up there. What a hype man. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, there was a lot of uh, white racists who were very offended. Uh, that the premise of the story seemed to be that uh, white people were being killed en masse by a mysterious illness, um, and they were very upset at this act of white erasure, as they called it. Um, and that very quickly snowballed into death threats and references to uh, the Christchurch massacre and images from their uh, live stream of it um, and the, the irony of them responding to my fiction with the literal massacres um, white people enact uh, was lost. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I wrote that story because I wanted to uh, poke fun at the idea of white genocide that um, white people and particularly uh, conservatives and racists are so hysterical um, about, you know, it's not real, white genocide, it's not real. And they even use that phrase to talk about uh, interracial marriage marriages. So even, even our love um, registers to them as murderous, as genocidal. Um, and so that's obviously ridiculous, right? And so then I went, well, what if I made it literal? you know, uh, what would happen and, and how would they react to that? And uh, evidently not well. So just then we heard part of the panel Arab-Australian Authors Unite for Lebanon recorded on Saturday the 5th of September and hosted by Better Read Than Dead Bookstore in Newtown, Sydney and Sweatshop Writers Collective. The panel was hosted by Dr. Jamana Bayer and included Ghassan Haj, Amani Haider, Omar Seka, Sarah Ayub, Ruby Hamad, and M.M. Morsi. 100% of the ticket proceeds of this event were donated to Impact Lebanon, an NGO that provides disaster relief as well as activism resources for the Lebanese diaspora. You can read more about the work of Impact Lebanon by going to www.impactlebanon.org.au and we'll provide a link in our show notes. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Hey, all you mob! It's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work, and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us, and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. 
If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. We're going to go into a new track. This one is very fresh. It was only released this week. This is Tuesday by Pookie. from Pookie. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. I think this is a great time to build community during this coronavirus. Everyone is in this together and I think it's a great way 
to open up to people around us and to reach out. For example, when you go out to your mailbox or go shopping or go for a walk, why not say hi to the people around you? A lot of people are already doing this, but I think um, the more people do it, the better. It's this little acts of kindness which will get us through this time. It's also very mutually beneficial, and I think we should keep building community even after this time. Marley Hammond is a Wiradjuri Irish and Flemish woman living on Ngunnawal and Nambri land. She's a disabled uh, organiser and writer and has had work published in Overland, The Guardian and New Matilda and has appeared on podcasts such as Living the Dream and Movement Memos with Kelly Hayes, among others. Marley is a board member of Women with Disabilities, ACT, and currently works in gender-based violence policy alongside studying a Master of Social Work. Thank you so much, Marley, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks for having me, Kylie. I really appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about reforms to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And I'm also wanting to hear some of your thoughts about some of the submissions and stories that are also coming out of the Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability. But first... Uh, let's talk about the recent government announcements of independent assessors being appointed to review everyone on the NDIS. Yes. Um, yeah, so basically what has happened is um, last week or the week before, my sense of time is all over the place, but quite recently um, the Minister for the NDIS, Stuart Robert, has announced a whole package of reforms as part of what's called the Tune Review into the NDIS, and these are the most significant reforms to the scheme since its inception in 2012-2013. And, yeah, a lot of the disability community is not happy about the idea of independent assessors. Um, So essentially what the government has announced is that for people wanting to either apply to the scheme or... Um, in already current participants' ongoing plan reviews, which is when you get your support kind of reviewed and funding adjusted, um, the NDIS will introduce independent assessors. So basically these independent assessors are going to be allied health professionals that people with disabilities don't know, have no relationship with with at all. And from as little as like 20 minutes to I think up to four hours, these assessors will come into your home, come into your life and assess not your disability, but your capacity, which um, I think is very much like neoliberal speak, um, which I myself as a disabled person am not comfortable with because like, hey, you know, I'm disabled. It's, we're not talking about my capacity here. We're talking about my needs that need to get met. Um But, yeah, so these unknown people are going to come into people's lives and kind of make a judgment um, of whether, A, you're eligible or, yeah, what what your capacity is. Um, And a lot of people, myself included, really do believe that this is another kind of cost-saving measure. It's going to be a way to refuse more people access to the scheme. And already we know that there is, like, a huge disparity in the number of different marginalised groups accessing the scheme, um, scheme, sorry, whether it's women, whether it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, whether it's people from non-English speaking backgrounds. Um, and, yeah, if we look to what has happened with the disability support pension over the last decade or two decades as well, you know, we can see the way that um, assessment tools, especially standardised assessment tools, 
have meant that people who have legitimate disabilities um, get kicked off support. And, yeah, I think everyone is very, very scared that that is what is about to happen. Yeah, and for listeners that might not be familiar with how the NDIS works, can you kind of talk us through what happens at the moment and then, yeah, yeah, what's going to happen when these independent assessors come in? Yeah, so what happens at the moment is that when you're applying for the NDIS, you collect a number of reports from doctors or therapists that you're maybe already seeing um, and you use these reports to assess your eligibility. The NDIS will then say either yes or no, depending on the circumstances and I should flag too that this process already isn't without its flaws. Like it, in my opinion, is not a perfect process at all. Like it very much um, already kind of um, discriminates against people who have what they call psychosocial disabilities. So, for example, people who have um, mental health issues that are maybe episodic. Um, but yeah, so people get these reports and documents from their current health professionals. The NDIS makes a judgment and then yes or no, you do get on the scheme. And then you have what's called a plan review. So this is, you know, maybe one or two hours can last a whole day even where you sit down with a member of NDIS staff and they kind of go through all of your support needs and then make up um, a decision on what your plan will look like and what the funding buckets will look like in the different um, areas of your plan. Um, and plan reviews happen are pretty yearly for most people, but they can fluctuate. Um, but with independent assessors, not only will you, you know, be collecting um, OT reports, allied health reports, reports from doctors that you're already seeing, you're going to have this extra hoop where it's an independent assessor, someone you've never had a relationship with, um, someone who will definitely not get a clear picture of your disability or your support needs. And I think most importantly, um, it's like impossible to say that these independent assessors won't come in with a very standardised view of disability, um, of what they think the funding level you need is, um, and won't use this process to... Yeah, not give people the support they need. Um, And there has been really valid critiques too within the disability community that already for, particularly for marginalised people with disability who already struggle accessing healthcare professionals, whether it be because of your class, Aboriginality, because of your sexuality, um, a lot of us don't have trusting relationships with any treating health professional at all. Um, so to add another <laughs> professional to the mix who just is kind of poking and prodding away and assessing you kind of reinforces this medical model of disability that the community has been fighting against for so long and that we thought, you know, the NDIS actually was a stepping stone towards looking towards a social model of disability. Do you remember when the NDIS was coming in at that stage, I was a youth worker and I was just working with so many young people who, um, you know, they could get on DSP, they could get on Centrelink, um, the, yeah, the disability payments, but like they couldn't get on NDIS because they, there was just not enough stability in their lives to do all of the 
goal setting and the planning. And you're right, they were moving around so much that they didn't have those trusted professionals that could do the reports for them. Um, And then, and you know, and the things that they needed, they couldn't get through NDIS. You know, they were wanting stable housing. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a, it was all yeah. about stability. Yeah, this is a huge critique of the NDIS already as it exists. It's like, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's like I actually need stable housing. I need food on the table. I need like my most basic material needs met. And it's like really great that I have access to physiotherapy or you know this assistive tech, whatever. But if I don't have my base level needs met, that other stuff kind of means fuck all. And for a lot of people, um, you know, the NDIS is not meaning – it was never designed to meet people's material needs. Um, and I think I, it's interesting yeah. that the government is now trying to bring in these independent assessors because they were saying that there's, like, geographic areas that they're seeing where the buckets that you're talking about, the, the mm. pools of money that they're giving to certain people in certain mm. areas are happening to be higher. Mm. So – I mean, is that actually still going to continue possibly, even with these yeah. independent assessors? Yeah, like who, literally who is to say. Mm. Um, yeah, I I honestly think it is like neoliberal creep. <laughs> not, that's not to say that this scheme from its inception was not already a very, you know, marketized model of social service delivery, um, but it is just like, um, I, I've seen a lot of people comparing it to robo-debt, obviously not in the way that the assessments will happen, but it's that same kind of um, – it's that same type of bureaucracy that government's pulling in to, yeah, to kind of kick people off social services and support. Um, and it's going to have, like, really disastrous – effects on the community like already people are talking about hey like if I have to go through this this is going to lead to self-harm like this is going to have such a negative effect on my life when I'm already struggling because of x y z um yeah I just I can't I can't morally see any reasoning for it at all um yeah yeah and are there any um like groups or organisations that you'd recommend listeners of 3CR to tune into? Because something that I noticed, Mm. there's just hardly any mainstream media that was, like, picking up on the fact that, you know, the government is reforming NDIS. Yeah, yeah. And this, I think this has been, like, a trend ever since the NDIS was announced. There's been very little engagement throughout um, not only, like, the NGO and progressive space, but also, like, broader community activists and leftist organisers, I think. There's very little engagement with disability issues in this country. Um, and the NDIS was the biggest social reform since Medicare that we've ever seen. Um, and so, you know, to, again, have really big reforms happening, it requires engagement. But um, I would recommend if people want to know more, kind of following and listening what are called DPOs, so they're disabled people's organisations. So these are organisations that are run by disabled people and um, they're systemic advocacy organisations. So organisations like First People's Disability Network, like Women with Disabilities Australia, like People with Disabilities Australia, um, all these type of organisations that are advocating for the rights of disabled people and know very well, like, how disastrous things like this are going to be. And I guess now 
Um, I want to, yeah, get your thoughts on the Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disabilities. So some of your thoughts about some of the submissions um, and maybe the topics that yep. the Commission's looking into and then also just your general views about what you think the outcomes might be. Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I should preface this by saying that, like, a lot of the content that is being given as evidence in the Royal Commission is, like, quite distressing and quite traumatic. So um, if you are a disabled person or if you have histories of trauma, I probably would, yeah, give you a content warning for a lot of the things that are coming up as this is, you know, intended to expose violence. Um, but from a lot of submissions that I've read or that been, have been reported in the media, um, it's like, yeah, very much unveiling systemic ableism within the community that leads to homelessness. There was one submission from a Radjuri woman named Narelle Reynolds talking about her two sons who both have intellectual disabilities and how, um, again, it comes back to that issue of just, like, material needs were not being met. Um, and it's so hard to access disability support when you don't have that foundational stability in your life. Um, there was another really shocking submission that I read about a 16-year-old boy with cognitive disability who passed away in hospital because... Um, yeah, he's, he's, he had a bowel obstruction, I think, and it just wasn't taken seriously by medical staff. So there is definitely um, a lot of submissions that are kind of unveiling the way that the healthcare system fails people with disabilities. Um, yeah, I personally, so I have submitted to the Disability Royal Commission on behalf of my mum, who passed away in 2019. Um, and I think um, when I heard about the Disability Royal Commission, I was quite hopeful that, A, it would prov provide a platform for disabled people to actually be listened to and for, I guess, more mainstream reporting of violence and abuse that happens that we already know happens but maybe the broader community isn't aware of. And, yeah, not to be a pessimist, but I... I'm um, quite disappointed to date of the way disabled people have been listened to. I think that maybe it's been quite a superficial display and I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that there'll be genuine change after the Disability Royal Commission, especially considering um, the failures of other Royal Commissions in the past. I think rarely do these things ever bring justice to communities. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I found it quite a disempowering experience. Honestly, I felt like my family weren't properly listened to, which was quite upsetting. Um, so I do hope that in the future, before the commission ends, that there are disabled people who find that they are empowered by being listened to. And I think that that not only is reliant on the commission itself, but it's reliant on media as well. Um, having more dedicated reporting to what is happening and also for our community to engage more with what's happening in the Royal Commission because I think it's quite easy to to switch off from those stories. But yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to particularly share with listeners? Not really, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, 
think it's been quite a stressful year for disabled people and so to to have um not only the pressures of the disability royal commission which has meant a lot of people have been already reliving past trauma and having to constantly share you know instances of violence that have happened to them but also now being forced to fight against these independent assessments during COVID, no less, you know, when mm. you're already focusing on just surviving, um, I think is quite insidious and mm. really does make you question, you know, why these reforms would be would be released now. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, because, yeah, like you were saying, and I think to, like, bring those two kind of topics together, I mean, the... You know, the Royal Commission into Disability seems like it's getting all of these snapshots and that's similar to what, you know, of people's lives and that's similar to what's happening here as well with these independent assessors coming in and only getting a snapshot of people's yeah. lives. Yeah. I guess this is a really big question, but um, what would you, like, hope to see in the future in the disability justice space? And I know that... You know, you did speak about this a bit with your interview um, on Chronically Chilled on 3CR, and I really recommend for listeners to go and listen to that. So just head to the 3CR website. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I'm going to be upfront. I, I don't think um, systems of care under current structures of power, specifically looking at capitalism, looking at white supremacy, I don't think they can ever do our community's justice um so i think yeah i'm trying to deeply embed my work in a disability justice framework that acknowledges that um i would like to see yeah people's care needs net without ever being considered disposable Mm. without ever being considered challenging or complex um and i would really like to see disabled people taken seriously and listened to because it's almost like um, it's almost like a lot of the time it's government kind of wondering how are we going to deal with disabled people? How are we going to meet their needs when like we have the answers? We've been telling you the answers for ages. Um, so I would very much like to see disabled people listen to. Um, yeah, and I think too deconstructing all the systems of violence that deeply deeply hurt and abused disabled people. In particular, I'm thinking of the healthcare system in which disabled people continue to die. I'm Mm. thinking of the justice system in which disabled people continue to be incarcerated at absolute disproportionate rates. Um, And, yeah, I'm I'm thinking of, I think it's very similar to the way that a lot of other criminalised communities are treated, even older folks are treated when... When our community has a problem, we tend to shut people away. We tend to lock people away in different institutions. So I would very much like to see deinstitutionalization, and I would like yeah. to see, yeah, I think abolitionist futures in which people are part of the community and those care needs are accepted as being something that's a part of the community that we have a responsibility to meet for people. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Thank you so much, Marley, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you, Carly. 
And just then, we heard a conversation that I had with Van Marley Hermans, who is a Wiradjuri, Irish and Flemish woman, living on Nonawal and Nambri land. Marley joined myself to speak about the Australian Government's recent announcement of independent assessors to be appointed as part of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. And that's all we have time for today. Uh, so first up, we had Jessica Scott from uh, Wire, which is a Victorian women non-binary and gender diverse referral group. And she joined us to discuss intersections of domestic and family violence and the lockdown period. After that, we heard a little bit from the panel Arab-Australian Authors Unite for Lebanon, which was recorded on Saturday, the 5th of September, to raise funds for the victims of the Beirut explosion. And then lastly, we just heard a conversation that I had with Mali, and we spoke about the Australian government's recent announcement of independent assessors that are going to be appointed as part of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And that's all we've got time for this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks for tuning in. And next up is Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.